July 28th, about 10 p.m. I just got my youngest son to bed, and I found myself in that zone where I had been exhausted, and I was dozing off, but suddenly I was super restless and energized. So I'm standing in my kitchen, sort of half-scrolling through TikTok while drinking some hot tea, when this froze me mid-sip. Oh, you didn't know that octopuses edit their RNA at an alarming rate compared to like most other animals that we know of, and they're doing it in response to temperature change? My attention was had. I mean, octopuses and RNA editing? Like, that's two of my favorite things to learn and talk about. Before I had even lowered the mug from my lips, I had hit the follow button and began writing a DM for an interview request. And they said yes. Hi, my name is Meg Midland. My pronouns are she, they. I'm a graduate student at Walla Walla University, and I study octopuses and their RNA editing. Within a week, we were sitting down for a conversation I think will go into the books as one of the best in this show's history. I'm Devin Boker. This is The Wildlife. And on today's episode, social media, psychom, and all things cephalopod. Their super cool brains, their mind-blowing camouflage RNA editing, peculiar romances, the underappreciated living fossils, and why octopuses are most definitely not aliens. But before we get to any of that, let's get to know Meg. I was always interested in animals. Um, I was definitely like an animal kid growing up. Um, I like had all the little bug kits and I would like go and collect bugs from the creek and I'd spend all my time in like, I, I grew up in Missouri, so I had lakes and rivers. So I spent all my time at lakes and rivers, like looking for crawfish and like catching little fish and little frogs and like all sorts of anything I could get in my hands on basically. Hearing that you might wonder, was marine biology always the plan? It was for marine biology, but I didn't take like the science path until like literally I was applying to colleges. Like everybody thought I was going to grow up to be an artist and I was going to go to art school and become a famous painter or something. And then I got really burnt out on art because of AP studio art in high school. Um, and I was like, you know what I love? I love the ocean. So let's just go and do marine biology and see where that goes. And then I got to my undergrad, my major was marine biology, and then I took my like intro to molecular biology course, and I was like, hold up. I was like, this is the coolest thing. Um, I like, I had always really loved genetics, um, but I just, for some reason, like everything clicked in that class, and all of a sudden molecular biology made sense to me, um, and I could not stop talking about it. So I switched majors. Um, I got myself into an RNA uh, research lab and I just like committed to like molecular biology and honestly it was great. It was, I, I loved it. I had so much fun. That is, that is really cool. I, mm -hmm. I, I, during like the academic year, I'm a high school science teacher. Oh, so, that's so cool. Um, yeah. One of my favorite units when we get to it is like talking like transcription and translation and stuff mm -hmm. and getting into RNA and everything. And, and I wish that more students were as excited about it as, a, as, as I get and stuff. Some of them are just like, like, okay. I feel like they just like, I got so hyped about it because of RNA editing and octopuses. I feel like they, mm -hmm. I don't know. For me, it's like, was the small little details that got me excited about molecular biology and like how yeah. all these little things came together and then made like mm -hmm. all the genetic diversity in the world. And it was all because yeah. of one little protein or like one little thing. Like it's just such small 
things that make me so excited about it. Yeah. Well, and context can be so important too. And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's my approach this year is maybe we frame it through octopus or something like that. That would be dope. I think that could be cool. I feel like people don't get excited about molecular biology until I start talking to them in the context of like cephalopods. And then they're like, yeah. oh, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> oh, this is actually pretty cool. Okay. It's because yeah. humans are boring. We like, no, we are human. We understand us, our experience as humans. I think humans are boring. I would much rather study something that's completely different from me. Oh yeah. 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 So, so getting, getting to where you know, that, that path is, is a path that can be really difficult, mm-hmm. um, for a lot, for a lot of reasons, a lot of people, what was your experience like? Do you have, do you have advice for others in terms of making it through college or getting into a grad program, especially I, in the sciences? I think it really is just find something that like ignites your like curiosity and like your love of like being alive in life. Like what makes you really excited about being on this planet and like just follow that and follow those questions and like keep asking questions even if like they're stupid questions or you think that it's like an obvious question sometimes it is like the best question and like the most perfect question that nobody has asked yet and you're like wow that's a great question and you're thinking a bit like oh wow this is obvious like how would you not know to ask this question but science is always new and exciting and coming up with new ideas and new discoveries and that only happens if you have the courage to ask all the dumb questions. Yeah, that's yeah. that's well said. Um, <laughs> on the on the on that spirit of maybe a dumb question, do you? So, looking at your your content and things on social media and stuff, mm-hmm. do you consider yourself like a a science communicator? I guess I do now. <laughs> it was like something that kind of came up as like I was in a job post-grad that I wasn't very excited about and I just wanted to talk about cephalopods. I was like, I don't care about what I'm doing. I just want to talk about cephalopods. So that's why I started making TikToks because I also had way more free time than I expected. Um, and then I just, yeah, and, and then I it kind of took off. And I mean, science communication was always something that was in the back of my mind because I had loved ologies, you know, I loved, you know, crocodile hunter. I loved the Kratz brothers growing up. Like I have been surrounded by science communication, like my whole life, like Hank Green, like, Oh my God. And so when there's really great science communication that I see, I get so excited about it. Um, So I think it's like a happy little way that I found myself into it. Like kind of had wanted to like see what's up with it, but just kind of ended up with it because I was bored and wanted to talk about Simplipods more. <laughs> hey, you know, sometimes free time is like the yeah, best thing for us when it comes to like unleashing creativity. And oh yeah. And you oh, have yeah. such a you have such a good a good range of things too, um, in terms of like science communication in general because you've got some things that are like here's some basic facts Mm -hmm. and then you've got some that are like you know where it's like the the text approach you know where Mm -hmm. it's like kind of short and quick and easily digestible and then you've got ones where you're breaking down research papers which is something that a lot of science communicators i feel like they stray away from they're just like animal facts animal facts and then oh i don't want to have to read that and (laughs) breaking down the papers is the thing that i like to do most but um, they never did well. <laughs> like the, so I would like make them and I'd be all proud of it. And then it would get like 
300 views and like nobody would see it but then I'd make a dumb wall of text that I made in three minutes that was just random info from my brain and it gets like 200,000 views and so that's the only reason I still make those is because <laughs> they just do so well um I I feel that more <laughs> yeah I feel that absolutely yeah like I mean the RNA editing one I made was the first one that actually like kind of popped off and I was like wow I've been trying to make an RNA editing video like 10 times now and it's never done this well yeah yeah I've kind of given up on understanding the uh the algorithms and oh, things it's so hard I mean I kind of understand why the wall of text do well because it's like five seconds and then they have to read it and so then it loops and then that so like then it just keeps going yep. yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good it's a good trick it is a good yeah. trick it is a good trick but people get so mad at me because they're like this is a run-on sentences I can't understand what it's saying and I'm like but that's the point because then you read it more <laughs> Right. And honestly, read it out loud. Like sometimes, I don't know, it's like I, I've done that too, where I'm like typing it and I'm like typing it the way that I would be saying it out loud if I was talking Same. to somebody and being conversational and just excited, you know? Yeah. And then I look yeah. at it after and I'm like, wow. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, like, that's fine. In my head, this made sense. <laughs> now, yeah. like yeah. next day, uh, maybe it doesn't make the most sense. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so many mistakes on my TikTok. Like people get mad at me and I'm like, this is a learning experience, guys. Um, I don't know what to talk about. Hey, that's honestly, I've seen that be an effective intentional tool that people have used sometimes too, where they'll like do a typo and then it gets enough people commenting like you spelled that wrong because yeah. everyone wants to be right. Yes, you, know, exactly. you spelled that wrong. And all that's of a sudden right. they've got like crazy engagement. Oh, yeah. That's why I used to, like, do, like, oh, like, octopuses aren't the best cephalopod species. And then everybody would get so mad at me. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? And I'd be like, ha, 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 guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so, so the octopuses, like, cephalopods in general, though, was that because you mentioned um, the RNA context. Mm -hmm. Was your work and experience and interest with cephalopods predating the RNA stuff? Or was yeah, that after it, the fact? It actually was. So like the cephalopod stuff was like my main like interest in like the ocean. Like it started off at sharks and then I saw like some YouTube videos in the early 2000s of cephalopods and like it was all downhill from there. Um, and then the RNA stuff, it just my first year of undergrad, I had to write a research paper and I wrote it about how climate change will affect the octopus. And that's when I found the RNA editing paper that had just come out like in 2017 um, when I wrote the research paper. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, this is probably the coolest thing I've ever read. I read a lot of other really cool things in octopuses too that like sparked my interest. But the RNA thing, I was like, this is bonkers. Like I need to know more about this. And I just got lucky that my undergrad UCSC um, is like the leader in RNA research in the world. And that's why I joined an RNA lab. Because I was like, RNA, RNA, okay, let's do this. Like, I need to know everything about RNA. Yeah, so it just, I just got lucky. <laughs> I'm realizing we've mentioned the RNA thing like five or six times probably, but haven't exactly explained that. And that's that's fine. We'll, go, we'll come back to it and explain it. Um, I guess first, because we've mentioned octopus several times, mm -hmm. it's a point that people always want to know, that people are always wanting to like jump on about. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the plural of octopus, 
what is the what's the correct plural well, it's not octopi i hate to break everybody's heart it's not octopi and it's not octopi because it's not latin um and so it is greek um so therefore you would use octopodes but the word octopus was invented by european scientists far after ancient greece so then kind of like all rules go out because it's not actually greek um, so you can use whatever the heck you want. And all, most scientists use octopuses. I don't think I've encountered one that has used octopodes or octopi. But it is octopuses. Um, everybody really loves to comment octopi on my videos, though. And I am, like, I'm tired of explaining this. <laughs> it's similar with uh, platypuses. Because I, I remember at one point going, is it platypi or platypuses? It actually, it might have been. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a, it was on a different podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that's when I learned what platypus really means. What does platypus and really mean? It means, hold on now. I'm trying to remember what it means. <laughs> it, it's, it's something like, oh shoot. What is it? So like, I actually yeah. did end up making a TikTok about this because it just, it makes me so mad, like completely irrationally, unnecessarily mad, but it does. And so rather than giving it more energy to explain here, I'm just going to allow past me to explain it. Platypuses are great, but their name is stupid. Like, have you ever stopped to wonder why platypus? Why is their common name platypus? I'll tell you why. George Shaw. In 1799, George Shaw was the first person to give a white people description of the platypus. But do you know what platypus means? Flat foot. Like, out of all of the possible things you could have named a platypus for, you picked flat foot. Now, granted, the, the species part of the name was anatinus, meaning uh, duck-like. So it was flat foot, duck-like, but still... And then it was more trouble because he couldn't use platypus because platypus, turns out, was the genus name for a very specific kind of wood-boring beetle. So they had to change the, the scientific name, but platypus stuck as the common name. So now we have this, this ancient monotreme, which is a, a mammal that lays eggs, uh, with, a, with a venomous spur, with uh, electroreception, all of these cool friggin' traits, and it's named for having flat feet. You're probably thinking, well, maybe the new scientific name, like maybe that's better. Maybe it's maybe it's more descriptive. No, Ornitho-Rhynchus anatinus. You want to know what that means? Bird nose, duck-like. Bird nose, duck-like. You've got an egg-laying beaver, duck creature, ancient egg-laying mammal. It sweats out milk. Well, it doesn't sweat out milk, but that's just how it releases its milk. It's almost like sweat. Like all of those really cool things. And he got flat foot and bird-like, duck-like. What? 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 Honestly, that is kind of upsetting. I just think humans really want the pie ending. I feel like somehow that, like, satisfies a little. It makes our brain go, you know? They're just like, ah, yes, this is satisfying. But no. Yeah, I think it's, it's shorter. It's, it's, mm -hmm. I, think, I think it feels cuter. I think so, too. I, I think so, too. But, but like, octopodes, but that's a mouthful. That's a whole mouthful. I would not want to say octopodes all the time. No. 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 That's not. No. Um, so octopus versus squid. Not not like fighting, but like yeah. in comparison to each other. What, what are the main like differences? So the main differences is that octopuses have eight arms and they don't have any tentacles. So squid, on the other hand, have eight arms, but they have two tentacles. And it's the same with cuttlefish. They also have eight arms and two tentacles. And there's like some other little differences, um, like octopus have 
like no internal hard structures whatsoever. So they've completely lost their shell. Um, cuttlefish still have remnants of their shell, which is the cuttle bone. And then squid have um, their statolith or their squid pen. Um, which is like an argonite structure. And octopuses also have a satellite, and so do cuttlefish, but octopus satellite is a lot smaller, um, hard to find, not as well developed. So that's kind of like the main differences between squid, cuttlefish, and octopus. Is it is it true that like each octopus arm has like its own brain kind of thing? Yeah, sort of. So I, pers- I this is like, this, this is an attend of an argument, I think, between me and my PI Kurt on thing. Um, because I think it's kind of my pet peeve when people say that an octopus has a brain in each arm. Because I get people that then come to me that are like, oh, well, did you get to see the, like, they think it's like an actual little brain in each arm. Oh, like, they take it literally. Like a little of this size thing. Like, yeah, they take it literally. Oh, and, it, and, it, and when they like are asking all these questions that like are based around that idea and I'm like, no, mm-hmm. that is not the right idea. Um, so essentially they have um, ganglion in each of their arms, which mm-hmm. um, are like a cluster of nerve cells. And in a way you can say that they are a brain because they're working um, without sending main signals back to their main brain. So they can like sure. work okay. independently. And like oh, if you cut okay. an octopus arm off, um, it will like still go and hunt food and then travel the food down back to its beak as if it still Whoa. had a beak. Yeah, so That's like cool. in a way it kind of is like it, it has a brain, but in reality, mm-hmm. It is just like we, a brain is the closest word that we could use to describe what this is. But yeah, because in general, isn't the concept of a brain really is just like a super dense cluster of, of neural cells? Yeah, right? and so it just... also tends to be like that then like receives all the signals back from the body. Yeah. Um, okay. And octopuses don't have that. They have a decentralized nervous system. So they have like a main brain in between their eyes, um, but two thirds of their neurons are spread out between their arms. So their arms can act independently from each other. They can like do all their own things. They can go off, one arm can go off and search for food. One arm can break open a clam. Like, you know, they are independent. They can still exert like top down control, but like really what I, the point I try to uh, stress is that their nervous system and their brain is like so different from any other brain that we know of that it isn't really even a brain that fits our definition of a brain, Um, which I think is the more interesting fact, but people, science communicators think that's a little bit too complicated for kids. But I feel like if you tell them it's not even a brain, they would be like, what? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even fit our definition of brain. Like they would remember that. It sounds like, I don't know, maybe I, I don't want to like convolute it too much, but it sounds yeah. like a big step up from like the neural net of a jellyfish. I mean, I'm mean, a big, a big step up yeah. from that where it's like a kind of widely distributed Yeah, network. sort of. I, I mean, I don't, to be fair, my knowledge of jellyfish is limited. Um, but like kind of, it, it's just that like most of their neurons are distributed in their arms. And so they get it. They get to do a lot of things done that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you've got eight that are kind of out 
yeah. you know, exploring the environment kind mm-hmm. of independently and stuff, and you can have... receive a lot of data like that, I guess. Oh, yeah. And they have taste receptors on each individual sucker. So it's like if your arms was covered in tongues um, and oh, they, yeah, and they can move each sucker independently. Like they have a lot of control over their arms and they can, it really is like in a way like they have their own brain, yeah which, but but it's also not i yeah <laughs> okay oh that's 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 fascinating i i prefer that definition i see what you're saying though like i, I prefer like to think it. of it like is it's just yeah. cooler i don't know it's i know and yeah. i just feel like saying that you have a brain in each arm just leads to more confusion than like like then you're just going down a wrong path or at least that's what I see with people on TikTok and when I talk to classrooms and things like that. They always end up at the wrong idea. Yeah, it's kind of the wrong point of, yeah. of like what makes it so unique and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think it really like loses its like complexity and novelty when you say it that way. Because it's just like it's literally not like anything else we know. Like they evolved their nervous system entirely independently from so it's not the same it's different it's like wholeheartedly different yeah yeah that's just that's awesome in terms of okay so like how many how many species are there of of octopus so there's about 300 species of octopuses um Mm -hmm. about 300 of squid and about 100 of cuttlefish oh okay and then like six of nautilus there was just there used to be only three but now they just discovered three more. So there's like about six of Nautilus. It's um it's kind of like a, a weak point for me for sure when it comes to to like zoology and stuff. Like I love it's like I love the idea of, of cephalopods and stuff. But then when it gets to like specifics, I'm like, oh, I don't actually know. That's that's interesting. <laughs> like I can name, you know, like there's the Pacific one. And then yeah. there's like the blue ring octopus that everyone <laughs> likes to talk about. Uh, Humboldt squids, I think are really cool and vampire squids mm-hmm. um, and stuff. But then, yeah, 300, like, holy smokes. That's a lot more than I thought. There's so many. I don't even know. I like I could maybe name like 10 octopuses. Like, I don't even mm-hmm. know them all. Like, and I think a, a lot of times, especially as we're doing more um, like molecular analysis of like their genomes and things, like we're just getting a different idea of what mm-hmm. type of species. So it's just ever changing and ever growing. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot, there's a surprising amount of them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Do you, do you have a, do you have a favorite? I'm really bad at picking favorites. So I have like, three. I like my favorites are Magnapinna, which is the big fin squid or like what we like to call the elbow squid. That's like the really deep sea elusive squid that like has his arms like this. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I can almost guarantee you that you have seen some kind of video somewhere on social media about the Magna Pena. It's that it's that one that usually the the footage is some kind of like um, really, really dark and like the green tinted, almost like it's night vision, you know, something like that. And it looks like if you took a stingray and then you and then you made it pointing upward and then down from the stinger, you had these two. Um, I don't even know, like uh, things that extended out to the sides and in both directions. And then from there, there's tentacles hanging. That's probably the worst description of a magna pinna that has ever been vocalized. But you know what? We're just going to we're just going to go with it. And if you really if it, if you don't know, then you could, I guess, look it up or I'll, I'll, I'll put a video in the episode notes. There you go. It's It's the one it's the one that like 
is the the stuff of nightmares, at least in those video clips. It looks like their tentacles extend for eons, and that's a measure of time, not distance. But George Lucas could do it, and so can I. So Magna Pinna is one of my favorites, and then the vampire squid, which is not a squid, but it's also not an octopus. It's its own thing entirely. And yeah, and there, there's a lot of thought of over whether vampire squid is like the ancestral species to um, octopuses and squid and cuttlefish, which um. is also very cool. And then the third is probably like the Dumbo or the Flapjack octopus. Like I oh, love, yeah. I love deep sea octopuses. Like they, they are, they are my favorite. Yeah. The Dumbo octopus is definitely another one that you've seen. They're the ones like, oh, 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 you know, in Finding Nemo, the one, oh, you guys made me ink. I'm 99% sure that is a Dumbo. Those, seeing those, anytime they pop up on like the Nautilus live streams and then the whole crew is all like, oh. Yes! It's, it's, it's I awesome. love I the Nautilus live streams. <laughs> I love seeing scientists get so hyped over the animals that they see. Oh my God. Like I would be the same way. Yeah. I would lose my mind. Yeah, I like to turn them on sometimes, like when I'm teaching and everyone's kind of doing independent work, I'll just turn them on in the background. But then I end up having to like, either I go on tangents or I have to turn them off because everyone's like, you know, staring. I'm like, that's awesome. We also got to get our work done. But look at these. Look at the hagfish on there. That's crazy. I would probably like a better one because I would also lose my mind and not be able to concentrate on anything else. Like the Monterey Bay live feeds. Those yeah. Are so good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And and yeah, sometimes they're not quite in there and stuff, so mm-hmm. then you kind of have to search for things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so speaking of like the neural stuff with with octopus and everything, I saw you had a video talking about the brain activity and the free moving octopus, and you were very very excited about <laughs> that whole topic. And I was just wondering, could yeah. you give like the synopsis like you did in your video? Yeah, so essentially they did the very first study of uh, brain activity in a free-moving untethered octopus, which people don't realize how hard. I mean, it seems like easy once you figure out how they did it, but, you know, there's not a lot of us, so it took a while. Um, Essentially, like, you can't put any monitors on an octopus because they will take it off. And so when they were originally trying to do brain scans of a free-moving untethered octopus, they put all the little clips on and then the octopus would just throw them off. And you can't really put them in an MRI machine because, you know, first of all, they're out of water, which isn't like most exciting for an octopus. You can't put an aquarium in like a tank in an MRI machine. Like it's just not an ideal environment. Um, And so what they eventually ended up doing was like surgically attaching a little neurotransmitter or a little like probe um, on top of their, like right under their mantle, right on top of uh, their brain. Um, And then like had a bunch of little electrodes uh, putting into like different parts of their brain, um, especially for like learning and memory, um, those parts of the brain. And then recorded like for like 12 hours of just what the octopus was doing. They had a video accompaniment as well. Um, and they only got 12 hours of recording because that was as long as the probe could record. Um, but they got some interesting things. They got a lot of wavelengths that are like very similar to, other, to what we see in other animals, like very on track. But they got one frequency that they had never seen recorded in any other animal 
which is wild. It was like it was like a repeating like like a boo boo. I think at least it was like a boo boo and then a pause and then a boo boo and a pause, something like that. It was like two hertz. Um, but they've never seen it in any other animal, and they don't know uh-huh. what it is. And they're like, you know, they are obviously going to do more studies. This was just kind of like the preliminary. Oh, my God, we did it. Now we can do this. Um, and now we're going to do other things. Um, but they, yeah, they don't know. They don't know what it, they don't know what it means. They don't know what it's for. But it is very intriguing. <laughs> that is intriguing. See, this is what I love about science stuff is like <laughs> there's never there's never an end. You know, there's no, always something no. new. People always are like, well, what does this study mean? What is the grant? What is it? And I'm like, guys, this is just the tiny little piece. And then they're going to go on and they're going to do this more. But like the big grand Mm -hmm. scheme, no, we don't know. We don't know. We just know. We just found this thing. It's cool. Now we have to go do more research and figure out. But for this paper, that's our main discovery. It's also, it's the... um you know, the humans, humans have a very, very limited view of like, what is intelligence? Yeah. What, you know, and, and it's kind of, it feels like in recent years in particular, that, that definition is kind of expanding a little bit. And we're starting to say, well, okay, human intelligence is just one form of intelligence. And there's actually many forms and it doesn't necessarily have to mirror human. And, and so like, I feel like when you kind of break that wall away, you can look at wildlife and their biology in a completely new light, which is pretty cool. Uh, like, I don't know. I just, I'm curious. I'm curious what the, the, the future road looks like. I mean, so I think the thing when we are talking about intelligence and other animals is that we love to compare it back to because we are the ultimate like organism. We are the most intelligent being, but really that's just like our perspective. Um, And it's not necessarily accounting for the organism and its environment and how well adapted it is to its environment. And so when we're talking about intelligence, you really wanna get into what you call the umwelt, which the umwelt is the organism's uh, environment and how they perceive it. And so when you're talking then about like, and I mean, there's this really good book called um, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are, which is fantastic and talks more about it than I think I'm able to talk more about (laughs) intelligence and animals. But I think we really, especially when it comes to octopuses, you have to get rid of sort of the vertebrate mentality, especially when it comes to when we're doing these other things. Like like we did the sleep study recently where we um, recorded an octopus supposedly in sleep state and supposedly dreaming. The thing is then, though, is we're taking all of this data and then directly correlating it to our experience when in reality this is an entirely new species developed entirely different from us. So there's not really a way that we can say that it is the same to us. It could be completely different. And we're just, you know, filling in the notches and being like, oh, we do this. That must be the same thing. But it could not be the same thing. It could totally not be the same thing. And if we continue to like anthropomorphize them in that sense, like humanize them, then we're kind of missing out on like the novelty of what it is they got going on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I think I it, it actually might have been, it might have been an 
ologies episode or something recently, but uh, mm. a similar topic, but with like grief, um, yeah. people talking about animal grief and wow, that's that those animals don't grieve. Okay. Well, are we looking at it the way that humans grieve? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you project and you go, Oh, that animal is grieving. Well, cause it yeah. looks like something humans might do. So yeah, it gets messy really, really quick when you just mm-hmm. want to like project like that. And yeah, so, and especially with like octopuses, because people are like, oh, they're so similar to us. They're so intelligent. Look at the curiosity. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you can see similarities. Like it is freaky, but like that's not because it's not us. It's it's different. It's which I think is then which I think is like the coolest thing about it is that it's so entirely different, but you kind of ended up at sort of the same end end game. Um, but we have to kind of get rid of the human biases so we can just see like how different it is. So, uh, that's actually a good segue. Human, human biases of things. Um, the Nautilus, the Nautilus, um, you had a good, you had a good segment on justice for the Nautilus. Yeah, I love Nautiluses. Um, they're one of my favorite animals. Um, I just think they're so freaky and cool and people always think that they are stupid. And that they're brain dead and they got nothing going on um, behind those eyes because literally you watch them and they're just kind of like floating and they just kind of drift through open ocean and they're kind of, you know, they don't do much. I don't blame them, Um, but they're not stupid. They have a very simple brain, um, but they can do a lot of cognitive tasks that you would not expect them to do. Um, and I just think that they deserve recognition <laughs> for yeah. not being completely brain dead. Like they, they perform pretty well, especially for having such a simple brain. I agree. And they're very Pokemon-esque. Oh, they're so obvious Because I mean, like every Pokemon oh is inspired by like real animals and stuff. But, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, if there was they're a just so cool. Pokemon, they're just so cool. And they're so weird and they're so freaky and like the fact that we're still discovering new species of them is wild and the fact that we thought that they were completely extinct up until like not that long ago and then all of a sudden someone found one and they're like no way and then they went back and they're like oh my god that is a nautilus like i just think i think it's great and they they really are like we call them like um living fossils but like living nautiluses aren't really like all that old they're like they're the spe- they're only like three million years old they still look the same but like completely different species from like way back when but it just like it brings a little bit of the like old school ocean back into like real world ocean and i just appreciate it absolutely there's there's a lot of examples of creatures like that that well, maybe horseshoe crabs aren't the best example because they've also been around for a really long time. But like, yeah, but so kind of a similar. So cool! I just yeah. love, I love freaky ant- ocean animals. Like, I would yeah. give anything to be in the Cambrian explosion <laughs> and just see <laughs> the wildness that animals got up to. Like, oh my god, they just tried out everything. They just tried it all. I know, out. right? And some of it, yeah, a lot of it, didn't, <laughs> but I love them all for it. <laughs> You look at some of the like the the artistic representation sometimes, and you're like, "No, you made that up. <laughs> like, there's there's no way." And then you look, you're like, "Oh, okay." Cephalopods, like Precambrian cephalopods, like there's literally one that looks like a safety pin. Like, why are you? <laughs> what benefit does that have to you? But like, slay, you're killing it. Yeah, yeah. Animals are weird, and I love Animals I love them so for weird. that. That's great. I do too. <laughs> Um, so I guess I guess now we should finally address 
the thing that we've mentioned and then did not elaborate on, which is such a, a tease for people to listen. Um, the RNA editing. RNA. And the, like the new RNA editing study. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I could talk all day about RNA editing. So RNA editing, it's a post-transcriptional process. So it just happens um, after DNA replication, but before the uh, code gets translated into a protein. Um, and so essentially... We, we do RNA editing, other animals do RNA editing. The difference is though that we and other animals are doing RNA editing in the untranslated regions of our genome. So the sections that don't get made into proteins. So generally nothing ever happens. I know now that like um, those un untranslated regions which are also called UTRs are being more researched and um, there is actually some cool things that happen with them. That is outside my knowledge. But for the most part, nothing ever happens. Um, in cephalopods, however, the edits are being made in the uh, translated regions of the genome. So edits are actually being made into proteins. And they do this at a magnitude far greater than any other species we know. Like nobody, we don't know any other species that does RNA editing like this. And not only do they do it so much, but they also have conserved editing sites that are passed down. Um, so it's freaky and there's kind of like this, you know, what is the, what is the give and take of doing RNA editing versus like conventional DNA evolution, which is where you have, you know, random mutation in your DNA that then gets passed down, um, through reproduction and as like the species goes on. And so like, there is some give and take, like, you know, their evolution is maybe slowed down a little bit, um, because they're not making things into their DNA. Um, so their traits aren't getting passed down, even though some are getting conserved, some edits are getting conserved. I don't know how the edits get conserved. Um, I don't know if we know that or not. Um, they discovered it randomly. Like they didn't mean to find it, which is all the best science is when you don't at all mean to find it. They basically got an octopus from the Arctic and then one from the tropics and they sequenced their DNA and then wanted to compare them. And what they found was that their DNA sequences were pretty much the same, which was not at all what they were expecting because they're two octopuses in two completely different regions of the world. They expect for them to be two different species with different DNA separated. But they didn't find that. They found pretty much the same thing. And then when they looked further, they found that almost all of the differences um, were in their RNA. Um, and so then that started a crazy rabbit hole of, oh my God, what are these cephalopods doing with their RNA? Oh, it's just fascinating. Cause like normally the way that it, it's, it's taught mm -hmm. or thought about is it's like, so you got your DNA, it's, it's your destiny essentially kind of, I mean, there's, <laughs> and you throw in epigenetics and stuff like that and it gets very yeah. complicated very quickly, yes, it does but you, know, you got, you, you've got your code and yeah. it, it gets transcribed and then that, that transcription gets translated and then, then then you've got your protein and that that's about it it's whatever the dna says and there's no interruption from there that's on. how it goes but in cephalopods you've got the dna but then the rna just does like it kind of just does its own thing so to speak like it makes yeah. its own edits and things which is yeah that's insane it is insane it's so wild it's so it's so completely wild. It's done by this thing called um, ADAR. So it's Adena, adenosine demases acting on RNA. And so what they're basically doing is they're going to convert your A nucleotide to an I nucleotide. 
And then an I nucleotide is read as a G nucleotide. Um, and so then that makes a whole lot of crazy, uh, crazy. effects because just changing one nucleotide can like encode for a whole different protein. Right. So uh, do they, do they know, do they know yet exactly like what leads to that, that pressure? Like what cause is it, is it, so we definitely, we definitely that... know right now that um, temperature will trigger editing. Um, that's like as much as we know. Um, that's kind of all that we are currently studying. I'm studying whether or not ocean acidification will trigger editing. Um, it does trigger editing, but um, I currently don't know. Well, I know that they're editing... Um, uh, zinc fingers, which zinc fingers are like little protein regulators that are attached to um, the DNA. And then like they're regulating like another protein and either like making more of that protein or making less of that protein. So now I'm trying to figure out what heck of protein they're making more or less of. Um, but that's kind of the scope of it. All the RNA studies have been done through temperature um, so we know temperature triggers it. There probably is more things that trigger it, like ocean acidification probably does trigger it. What it triggers, don't know yet. But that's yeah, that like people ask me so many questions, and I'm like, this this is it, guys. Like this is why I'm trying to get you excited about this, so you all will join me <laughs> and become yeah. scientists and make more research, so we can find more things out about this. Uh, I I I I cannot wait. To share this with my students in the in the fall because oh, cool. it's just fascinating it's just so that is cool. and I'm, so i i see what you're saying because you mentioned how like it might have it's, it's maybe slowed down their evolution a bit because the dna itself isn't changing all that yeah. much but that's just so interesting that it's like you know in the individual's lifespan because mm -hmm. that's that's the other piece we normally you know there's no changes in the lifespan there's no changes yeah. in the lifespan it's all generation to generation yeah but in cephalopods it's changing in the saying, lifespan no it's changing lifespan that's and then, so like, the cool. wildest thing about it is because there's, you know, pros and cons. Like, con, they're slowing down their evolution. They're, like, normal, conventional evolution. Pro, they can have multiple versions of the same protein, and they keep them all. So depending on the environment, they've already made that edit. Suppose, like, this is Gosh. the thinking. And then they can, like, you know, choose which protein is, which edited protein is best for their current situation. It's like, it's like wide-ranging adaptability in their lifespan yeah i suppose which yeah. is just that's just and cool. then it's like you know then you get all the big pictures because like cephalopods have survived five mass extinctions they've never died out you know they're older than trees they're older than sharks like they've been around for a while and they've never died out so like is this possibly did they take this little tool that nobody else was using expand upon it and like that was the whole reason for their success like, like how, how have cephalopods got here? How have they survived? How are they the way they are? And then it's like, well, probably RNA editing played a big role in that. There's, there's a couple things that are like popping up in my mind. And yeah. number one, I guess it's just, that's, it's probably the coolest thing in biology that I've ever heard about. Which I, think so <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. I could also see people knowing the internet. I could also see people go, see they're aliens like <laughs> see they're different from anything oh, else that no. exists and therefore and it's like well no that's not <laughs> okay that's, <laughs> but I that's, could totally my, see it. that's my eye uh, like okay 
I will. I'm. I'm. I'm a, I'm a sci-fi lover. I'm an alien fiend. Give me all the science fiction you can possibly give me. Octopuses are not aliens. Um, and honestly, I think that makes it cooler. And the reason that we know they are not aliens um, is because we can trace them back in our lineage. You know, we have a common ancestor with octopuses. They come from snails. Like, you know, they are in our history. They are made of the same materials that we are all made of. They are born on planet Earth. But they are kind of the closest thing that we have to what life would look like on a different planet. And I say that sparingly because I hate mentioning it. And then people are like, they're aliens. But like, if you think about it, they have evolved a completely different way of getting similar traits to us. But they're doing it in a totally, they have the same materials, same proteins, same cells, everything. And they've just used them all differently and ended up at the exact same place. Which, you know, maybe that that's probably like what other life is going to look like, because we can see on other planets that, you know, Earth is perfectly suited for life, for creating life. We got our oceans, we got our oxygen, you know, we have all the things that make life. But life isn't always going to evolve exactly the same way. It's just a big, it's a big give and take. It's a big, here's the materials, see what works. Um, and octopuses did it in a completely different way. And so, yeah, in that sense, they are kind of the closest thing we have to aliens, but they were not, they're not aliens. <laughs> right. It, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've even had students who have been like, I've seen Doctor Who, and I've seen the Daleks and they look like, you know, squid or something. And I, I, I but that's bet, because, I bet that's because all of media has taken cephalopods as their inspiration for creating aliens. Which, like, I can't blame them. They're freaky. They make a good alien. Oh, yeah. There's also, though, a, like, pretty bogus paper that's been debunked. But they had a theory that octopuses did come from outer space. And they came from a meteoroid with octopus eggs on them and then landed in Earth. And that, like created the cambrian seeded so the, the planet or something oh okay that so there's the cause of the cambrian that i think is what <laughs> is what caused sort of the alien outburst um but it's been debunked pretty heavily it's not true um yeah so i think that's also partially to blame <laughs> and the rna editing stuff is not helping on like the octopuses are alien. oh no 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 especially especially given today's uh stuff involved oh yeah that like aliens that, yeah. supposedly exist yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i mean if kidding. aliens were to exist the deep sea is the best place to look for them because we're not going down there it's unexplored we can reach there like if aliens were to exist and invaded our planet they're down there like yeah, i so, i fully <laughs> believe that they would be down there <laughs> yeah i i i agree i agree um Okay. Okay. So, so cuddle, cuttlefish. I know it's kind of a, a quick, um, well, let's get into detour, cuttlefish. I suppose, but cuttlefish, I've, I've been fascinated by cuttlefish for as long as I can remember the, the, the different ways that they kind of like, I can't even describe it. The weird, like the waving that they do on their body, like the, the weird hypnosis. hypnosis things. And yeah, they're just, they're fascinating and they seem different enough from like, over, like other squids and, and octopus and things like that, that I don't know. They're, they're pretty unique. Um, First thing, though, before getting into some of the other details about them, the 3D glasses study. 
the 3D it looked glasses. adorable for a while. So this is one of my favorite studies. Um, and I think it's obvious. I mean, they put 3D glasses on a cuttlefish. I could not become a favorite uh, cuttlefish study. Uh, basically, they wanted to like test the vision of cuttlefish and see what type of vision they have. Um, and it turns out that they have vision, you know, very similar to us, which we kind of knew already because they have a retina, they have a lens, um, they have camera like eyes. So it is they do have eyes similar to us. And so they also have eyes similar to us where we have stereo vision and they have stereo vision, which is where they compile different images and then bring them together. And so that's what that's what the 3D glasses study was uh, studying. And it's the first instance of stereo vision in um, invertebrates, which is also very cool because, you know, again, they evolved this completely separately from us. So it's wild that they've ended up with the same things and we're not even closely related. I, so I suppose this is like a kind of something I was going to mention in a minute, but um it, it works. So I've, <laughs> I've heard like a lot of different things before about cephalopod vision mm-hmm. and how it relates to their camouflage, mm-hmm. because a lot of them have just some of the most spectacular examples of camouflage. I mean, even changing texture and things and people saying things like, well, they can't see color mm-hmm. or they can't see these things. And yet they do this. And how do they do this? And, and it's a big what if kind of question. Um, what's going on there? <laughs> So, oh, so there's so much going on. And I think the thing that frustrates people, which I think it frustrates them about cephalopods in general, is that we don't totally know. Um, And so what's happening is that cephalopods are colorblind, and that's because they only have one color pigment, and you need at least two color pigments to see color. There are some cephalopods that can see color, like the firefly squid. Um, And then there is one octopus that can also see color. Um, But they're like a Um, And we think that they are seeing the ones that can see color, they're seeing it to detect bioluminescence. Um, But the the way that we think that they're able to camouflage without seeing color is there's two different hypotheses. So one, they have proteins in their skin that are also found in our eyes called opsin. So in a sense, they can kind of see with their skin. So the proteins, um, opsin, are detecting um, not colors, but like brightness of things. And so then they're directly attached to their chromatophores. And now that I'm bringing up chromatophores, I feel like we need to talk about their (laughs) camouflage in general. So in order to camouflage, they have a couple different um, types of cells. So they have... Uh, the main one is chromatophores, which is the most widespread. And they're like little balls of ink sac um, that they can expand and constrict, either to show the color or to show no color. And those are all connected by like really intricate muscle systems. And then on top of that, you have iridophores. And iridophores are little cells that are responsible for like your blues and greens and purples, like all the little shimmering colors. And these are like the second most widespread. And then on top of that, um, you have photophores, and photophores actually create light um, in contrast to leukophores, which leukophores are only in octopus and cuttlefish, not in squid. Um, leukophores just reflect light. So photophores are actually creating light, and they can do that in a different couple different ways, like with um, symbiotic bacteria, um, where leukophores reflect light. So they have this little system. They got the chromatophores, they got the iridophores, they got the leukophores, and all of these things on top of each other is what creates the amazing camouflage. 
camouflage. And then on top of that, they can change texture. And they do that by stacking little skin cells on top of each other and having these little papillae. And little papillae are like in specific spots um, and that they always have. So like they'll have them on little eyes, you know, they can't just like spurt them up everywhere, but they are kind of all over the place. Um, and all of that is connected with really intricate nerves in their arms and it takes a whole lot of muscle power to do it. And then, yeah. Um, so <laughs> going back, they got the opsins on their chromatophores, which are detecting brightness. Um, and then the other hypothesis is that their pupil shape helps them detect chromatic abbreviation. So chromatic abbreviation is essentially, um, if you see like a prism and then like the light, like you bend the prism and then the light gets like blurry and that's when you see the color, they're using that to detect color or that is the hypothesis and that their pupil shape, whether it's the dumbbell pupil, the W is taking advantage of chromatic abbreviation to see the blurry color. But that is again, only a hypothesis. So it could be a combination of chromatic abbreviation and the opsin protein, but it also could be something else that we just don't know. Like it's very hard to study this system and there's just, there just needs to be more research on it. We just don't fully understand it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's frustrating. It's the reason the whole thing is beautiful. And I, I just, I love mm -hmm. that because like, I like, I like when they're still not in those. You know what I mean? I like do when too. there's still things where like, well, we don't really exactly know how it works. It happens. We know what happens. Just not entirely sure how. Like that's 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 cool. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I try yeah. to like tell, especially on TikTok, I'm like, guys, there if you are curious in this, and this is like, oh man, I want to figure this out. Go figure it out. We need you. Go become a go be a comatothologist. Go become a biologist. Like you could go so many routes in understanding, like studying cephalopods. There's so many different avenues that you could take, and you would be contributing to new information. Like if you want to make a discovery, make it in cephalopods, man. There's so much to discover. Okay. All right. I think I think two two more um, two more points. Okay. And then. I'm running up on my on my clock, so but it's just so hard not to like. Okay. It's so hard uh, not to. Yeah, I could talk forever. I, are there um like I know there's so many, and so it's kind of cruel to ask you to pick a couple, mm -hmm. but like in terms of interesting behaviors that mm -hmm. different cephalopods exhibit, like what are some of the most like outlandish or interesting um behaviors that that, you, that you've seen? There's this one squid um that during mating they will actually um, shove their arm into any squid's mantle that they see. So they will literally burst a hole open in the squid, male or female, drop their little sperm packet, and then go on their merry way. And that's just, that. I think that's absolutely hilarious. They don't check. They don't check if it's male or female. They don't really check anything. They just burst a hole through their mantle, drop their sperm uh. packet, go, which I... <laughs> I think is so, so funny. Um, and I also like bisexual icons, <laughs> truly no preference. Um, yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So, so that doesn't, does it, does it kill the. the no, it doesn't kill they, them. I mean, well, they're going to die well, shortly after mating anyways. Right. And it is, yeah. is Ocbiotuthis um, that does this. Um, and they also will like. Like, okay, so basically when you have like um, 
cephalopod reproduction parts. They have like a little end of their tip that is um, basically where they produce sperm. Um, they basically patch them up into this little sperm packet that I kind of think of as like a little ketchup packet instead of ketchup, though it's sperm. <laughs> and that's how they like, so they'll like take their little arm that is actually their penis and they'll stick it in the female's mantle cavity and just like kind of drop it. But sometimes, especially with like octotoothus, with how aggressive this is, they will just drop that arm and they'll just drop the arm tip like a little lizard. Um, and we also <laughs> see this in um, the paper nautilus. They will actually just, oh, hectocotylus. They will actually just rip their hectocotylus off and give it to the female because just kind of in spiders, you know, it's the same thing. The female may get a little hungry, um, may take a little nibble. Um, so they'll just drop it off, but in Octiotoothus, they'll drop their little sperm tip, they'll punch it through the mantle, drop their little hectocotylus like a little lizard, um, and be on their merry way. That's, that's interesting. And see, these are the reasons that it's important not to personify too much. Yeah! <laughs> get a little bit I mean, weird. But I want to personify them a little bit because I do think they are the bisexual icons of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I've heard of spiders doing that too, where they're like just, sometimes they'll just like kind of rip one of their arms off. And they're like, yeah, hey, I mean, I think this. it depends on like how angry they are, how, how much they're annoyed by, you know, how hungry they are, if they need a little snack. Um, I think it's iconic personally. I would love to have the ability to just eat my mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, that's for sure. Jeez. Huh. Um So that's all right, all right. cephalopod facts. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the I like the, you know, they're older than trees. Um, I think that's a great one because they really have been around forever. They've had quite a history. Um, and I think it takes people like, they're like, oh my God, they were around before trees even. I'm like, yeah, before trees even became a thing. Are there, are there any, um, is this a, a, an area I just, I don't think I ever really see anything um, in terms of like conservation. I mean, there's like species declines, like you wouldn't believe all over the place and basically yeah. every phyla of life. Um, cephalopods, how, how are they doing? Are they currently? they are doing so good <laughs> they are booming my um like spec like hypothesis on why that is is their main competitor is fish um and currently we are overfishing the crap out of them um we are really over exploiting um all the fish stock and so we have a lot less fish in the ocean we have removed 90 percent of the large fish from the oceans and 88 percent of the world's fish stocks are already fully exploited, overexploited, depleted, or in a state of collapse. That's something that we talked about on the episode with Alexandra McInturf. Uh, it was mostly about shark conservation, but of course that came up. So um, if you want more about that, you can look in those episode notes. There's a bunch of papers in there. Otherwise, I mean, look around, look at life. So I think why their populations are booming right now is because there's less fish. So they're kind of filling that niche um, and taking over where the fish have gone out. Um, but in terms of like long term, I don't know how well they will do. Um, it's a lot of speculation, um, mainly when we do like um, lab tests of um, cephalopods and how they fare to like hotter wa waters, they don't fare well. Um, it really is detrimental to their reproduction and development. Um, in the squid and cuttlefish, 
Um, they they have their little statolith, um, which is a tool that's used for um, balancing and orientation. And when you have too hot of water temperature, they don't develop properly. And so then you end up with a lot of squid and cuttlefish that can't properly orient themselves. And then on top of that, um, they can't, uh, they don't, their reproduction is um, threatened. So whether or not like the eggs can get fertilized. And then on top of that, the egg casings in warmer waters won't fully protect the eggs. So you end up getting a lot of uh, babies that either aren't fully developed or just like won't hatch or die shortly after hatching. So you're getting like smaller octopuses and cuttlefish. You're getting smaller, well underdeveloped ones. They don't survive long after hatching. Reproduction is threatened. And then on top of it, they have a threatening to their balance and orientation. So all things don't look good. But saying that, when we then look at, you know, putting octopuses in different environments um, and like doing like RNA editing things, they're acclimating, you know? So like, and they have survived five mass extinctions. So, you know, we have these lab studies that says, you know, oh, it doesn't look too well, but then they, we have all these other things that seem to say that they can acclimate. Um, and that they seem to be doing okay. So it's a really, we don't know. My opinion is if waters get too hot, not going to go well. Even if they can acclimate with RNA editing to um, a certain extent, if it gets too hot, you know, if their reproduction and development is threatened, then that's not going to fit well. It could just be that they see a dramatic drop in population. Maybe they don't die off completely. Maybe they, you know, go deeper. Maybe, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. Ocean's complicated. In the ocean's particular. so complicated. Yeah. And cephalopods, I mean, especially this, the RNA stuff, uh, that's uh, that's a whole it's new can favorite. of worms to consider. It's my whole, it is a whole new can of worms. And I wish everybody, I wish we talked more about it because I feel like so many people will get so much more interested in molecular biology when they learn about RNA editing. Um, so I guess I suppose the, uh, the, just the final, final kind of thing would be, mm-hmm. and you've kind of, I, I feel like in general, everything we've discussed has been a solid argument for why people should care about cephalopods. But if you had to like a campaign pitch for why everyone should care about cephalopods, whether it's considering studying them or just learning about them or seeing them, I don't know, whatever it is, but why should, why should people care? I think it gives you, I think it gives a fresh perspective of life and how life evolves and how life becomes. And it kind of, for me at least, that gives me like a whole new love of being alive, of like being like, wow, the world is really freaking crazy. And we are only beginning to understand it. And we won't be able to fully understand anything if we kill it all off. And if it all goes away and we don't do anything about climate change and all the oceans boil and like we will never know. We will never know how something cool all of these animals are and the crazy adaptations that they have used to survive in such crazy conditions and how completely different that is from us. I think a lot of people love talking about human biology and all these like, oh, they're just like us. But what about things that are not at all like us? 
not at all, not at all like us, completely different, and yet look so similar. Like, I think that just, it, it, how can you not care? How can you not care about that? How can you not root for them? How can, I, I don't know. I just think, <laughs> I just think they're so stinking cool. And I think we can learn so much about them and we can really come up with even like new innovations for humanity comes from cephalopods. AI technology, cephalopods. Soft robotic arms, cephalopods. You, they're even trying to engineer color changing skin cephalopods even rna editing gene therapy for chronic health conditions cephalopods like there are so many answers in cephalopods well said um <laughs> <laughs> i think that would sway anyone's vote for sure uh no yeah that's 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 solid campaign. that's solid thank you so much <laughs> this yeah. has been i would say in 180 episodes and almost as many interviews probably one of my favorite conversations just because this has been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for having me this was so much fun yeah this was great so um thanks again meg as was alluded several times throughout today's episode meg is so much more than an octopus biologist studying the remarkable rna editing abilities she's a science communicator primarily on tiktok as invertibabe and invertibabe that's i-n-v-e-r-t-e b-a B-E. And for some reason, where I type that, it says invertebating bean, which makes no sense. Meg is an artist, an incredibly talented one at that. I highly encourage you to give them a follow and check out their work. Meg has a super creative sticker club of cephalo-inspired designs like the cuttlefish and 3D glasses we mentioned, as well as merch. Like that merch, my personal favorite, has got to be the save the oceans, save the world design. Very heroes-esque which is probably a niche reference nowadays. As always, thank you for listening. To learn more about Meg, the things we discussed today, or how to support the show, check out the episode notes for a virtual ecosystem of links and other cool things. If you have any questions, requests, or recommendations, feel free to reach out to me via email at hello at thewildlife.blog or on TikTok and Instagram at devinthenatureguy. Next time on The Wildlife, the queen of the wild. But until then, wander often, wonder always, and peace out, Rainbow Trout. Rainbow Trout.